Please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, and we're going to be continuing our sermon series through 1 Peter. So 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. And the apostle Peter writes, and he says, the end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. And be hospitable with one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our kind, kind, gracious Heavenly Father, how grateful we are that we can gather together to fellowship, to sing your praises, to read your word, and be exhorted by your word. We thank you for these words that we just read. We ask that they would speak to us, that you would uh, touch our hearts, move us as we look to understand how we are to live as we approach uh, uh, the end times and we are in indeed the last days today. Now we love you, we praise you, we give you all the honor and glory. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Setting a date for the end of the world is a very popular hobby. Back in 2012, we were all told that the world was going to end because of some Mayan ancient calendar that ended. I don't know how many of you remember that, but I certainly do. Uh, A couple of years ago, uh, a popular climate, some would say activist, other would say climate hack, uh, Greta Thunberg, tweeted out that a top climate scientist is warming that climate change will wipe out all of humanity unless we stop using fossil fuel in the next five years. Well, five years later, here we are today, and the world has not ended. The rumors of Earth's demise have been greatly exaggerated. But predicting the end of the world is a common pastime, even among some of those who claim to the title of Christian. For example, in the 2nd and 3rd century AD, shortly after Jesus' uh, birth, death, and, and resurrection, the Gnostics, a group of pseudo-Christians, claimed that Jesus was going to return and set up a new Jerusalem in Turkey. Uh, and of course, that didn't happen. The Gnostic prophecies went unfulfilled. However, their predictions did inspire many copycats. Uh, One such imitation began during the so-called Second Great Awakening, um, which really launched a lot of of, of cults and false teachers. In 1843, there was a man by the name of William Miller who predicted that Jesus was going to return to earth somewhere between the spring of 1843 and the spring of 1844. Now, when Jesus failed to return, he declared that he had miscalculated the date and actually Jesus was going to return on October 22nd, 1844. Of course, Jesus did not return, and Miller was proved to be a fraud. However, his teachings did help launch the Seventh-day Adventist cult, which is a heretical cult that has a false view of the Trinity, an unbiblical view of Christ, and an unbiblical view of salvation. They're not Christian. Neither are they the only cult to set the date for Christ's return. Charles Taze Russell, the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, or or Watchtower Society, was influenced by the Adventists, and he claimed that Jesus had returned to earth in 1874 and was going to take all Christians to heaven in 1878. And he also claimed that history as we know it would end in 1914. Of course, that didn't happen either. Uh, 
Many cults at the time and place were when they think that Jesus will return and that the world will end. Of course, we know that only the Lord knows when Christ will return. We should not be like these cults and try to discern when that will happen. However, we also know that we are currently living in the last days. And the Bible gives us clear instruction on how to live in the last days. We are to live in a manner that is always ready for Christ's return. Not always predicting the date for Christ's return, but always to be ready when Christ will return. And we're reminded of what Martin Luther said when he was asked what he would do if he, would, uh, if, if he knew that Christ would return tomorrow. And he replied that he would plant a tree and pay his taxes. No, he wasn't working for the IRS. What Luther meant, of course, was that he was supposed that we were supposed to live every day in light of the end, and hence we should do the appointed task of the day. We should continue serving the Lord in the exact same manner. In Luther's time, there was a set of radical Anabaptists who had taken over a city in Germany and proclaimed it to be the New Jerusalem, and they were convinced that Jesus was going to return and set up his kingdom in Germany. And of course, they too were wrong, and their revolt was soon crushed. They would have done much better to heed Luther's advice. Peter gives us instruction for living in the last days. His advice is so much more practical than speculations and trying to determine when Christ will return. So our passage today contains three uh, basic commands that saints need to live godly lives. And these commands are personal holiness, which concerns our relationship with God, Mutual love, which concern our relationship with each other, and spiritual service directed towards the church. So in 1 Peter 4, 7 through the 11, the apostle gives us three commands that should help you live for the glory of Christ in the last days. Now verse 7 begins by providing the context of the passage. Notice it says, the end of all things is near. Now the end is not speaking of a chronological end as if something simply stops. It's speaking of the consummation of history, the end goal of God's eternal plan. And this end goal, of course, is the triumphant return of Christ, Christ's second coming. Christ's return to rule and reign on the earth is the consummation of history. The coming return of Christ is a consistent theme throughout Peter's epistle. We see such reference in chapter 1 and in verses 7 and 13. And we also see that the apostle is ref, uh, referencing the return of Christ earlier in chapter 4 and verse 5, where he says, But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living in, and the dead. In verse 5, Peter is speaking of the reprobate, the unsaved, who will be judged for their evil deeds. But verse 7 begins a shift in focus. Whereas the previous six verses speak to the believer's relationship with unbelievers, verses 7 through 11 speak to our relationship with fellow believers in light of Christ's return. Now the consummation of human history is, is not some far off event. It's not something that is in the very distant future or vague or some indefinite concept. No, we're told that the consummation is near. Christ's return is imminent. Now notice I'm not setting a date. Peter wrote this when? In the first century AD. 2,000 years ago he was saying that Christ's return is near. Now this nearness is not related to the presence of the last days. Because the last days aren't near. They're already here. We are currently living in the last days and have been since Christ returned to heaven. And Peter has already discussed this reality in chapter 1. Turn back with me a page to 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 20. 1 Peter chapter 1 
verse 20, and Peter is speaking of Christ's first coming here when he died on the cross. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, it says, For he, speaking of Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. So Christ was foreknown, meaning he was loved by the Father from before the foundation of the world. From eternity past, there was a perfect love between the Father and the Son. And this love sent Christ to earth as incarnate, born of a virgin. Christ appeared in the last times. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ ushered in the last days, these last times. And the original audience of Peter's letter was living in the last days just as you and I are today. The last days are here, and the end, the consummation of history, is near. And what does this mean for the believer? Are we to start creating charts to predict when the end will arrive? Well, we already said that that's, that's wrong. Are we to give ourselves over to pleasure and indulgence because the end is near? No. You know, Peter's purpose in teaching eschatology, which is the study of end times, eschatology, the study of end times, is not so that we can create fancy charts in an attempt to predict when Jesus will return. Now, there's nothing wrong with creating Bible charts to to understand eschatology or any doctrine for that matter. They can be very helpful. I mean, we just visited Sydney's parents last weekend in Colorado, and my father-in-law was showing me this chart that he had made that fit together the biblical narrative of eschatology found in Daniel 7 and, and Zechariah and Revelation. But his purpose wasn't to predict when Christ would return. We know that only the Lord knows such information. So my father-in-law's purpose was just to gain a better grasp of biblical eschatology. He's a visual learner, as many of you, I'm sure, are. And there's nothing wrong with creating charts and pictures to help you learn. But the ultimate goal of doing that must be to draw us closer to Christ and help you live a holy life. And this was Peter's goal in writing about the last days. If you remember, Peter commands us to be holy because God is holy. Believers who live in this present age must do so in light of the future. The purpose of eschatology then, the study of the last things, must be to better conform us to the image of Christ. We are to live our lives in a manner that recognizes the imminent return of Christ. Eschatology then provides part of the basis for Christian ethics and morality. And in chapter 4, Peter gives the believer instructions on how to live in the last days. He gives a series of commands that we are to follow due to this eschatological understanding. Peter's opening statement in verse 7 of chapter 4 provides the context for the remainder of our passage. So please keep that in mind as we transition to the first of Peter's commands for living in the last days. So Peter's first command is best summarized as keep a clear mind. Let's look again at the latter half of chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7. and says, Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Now note the first word, therefore. It links us, this command back to the eschatological context of the end being near. Because the end is near, we are to keep a clear mind. And Peter provides us two imperatives in this verse. He says, be of sound judgment and be sober. Now the, re- the word rendered be of sound judgment is derived from a term that literally means to be in your right mind meaning that you must be disciplined and free of uncontrolled passions. To be of sound judgment means that you are guarding your mind. 
The Christian mind must be clearly fixed on spiritual priorities and righteous living, which is why Peter has already instructed his audience to be holy. Holiness is something that a self-indulgent, deceptive world seeks to distract from, deflect, and destroy. And this is why Peter must remind his audience to be of a sound mind. Likewise, you are to maintain a sound mind even when suffering persecution and opposition. Let me illustrate from the movie Gettysburg, which portrays the famous battle, which changed the course of the American Civil War. It's one of my father's favorite movies, one that I grew up with, and, and one of mine as well. Uh, in this movie, the Union Cavalry Commander, General Buford, is faced with the impending approach of a hostile Confederate army. Now, the Confederates outnumber Buford's cavalrymen, uh, who are waiting for reinforcements to come help them out. And Buford knows that the enemy will advance against his position in the morning and attempt to seize the vital high ground and defeat the Union army. Now, General Buford, he recognizes this fact, and he fervently urges his commanders to keep a clear eye. The enemy is advancing. The cavalrymen must prepare to experience great suffering and hardship before they're relieved by reinforcements. And this scene provides a great illustration of what you face spiritually. We hold the high ground of holiness. The enemy, the world, and the devil advances against your position. They are seeking to dislodge our minds from the high ground of holiness. On earth, believers are outnumbered by the enemy. It's easy to retreat, especially when we forget that we have reinforcements. We have the Holy Spirit within us, and we have God the Father in heaven and the Son who is, who is our mediator, mediating for us. But we have to remember that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, 1 John 4.4. 4. It's only when believers' minds are subject to Christ and to his word that we see matters from an eternal perspective. Such a mind enables us to hold the high ground of holiness. Now, sadly, the approaching culmination of history has led some believers to lose their heads and act irrationally. You know, the phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, is promoted by the world and is adopted by many Christians. Yet believers should think sensibly as they contemplate the brevity of life. Those who understand biblical eschatology can assess the significance of this present age. Thus, just as the believer is to be of sound judgment, he also must be sober. That's the second of Peter's imperatives. And the NASB translates the word as sober spirit, and it can be read in this metaphorical sense of staying alert and keeping a clear mind or a clear eye. However, the literal meaning of, of being sober forms a stark contrast with the riotous living and debauchery associated with the drunken festivals of the surrounding pagan world that Peter describes earlier in verse 3 of this chapter. Christians were and, and are today to be sensible in their thinking and to exercise sobriety. A Christian is not to become drunk, for no drunk can keep a clear mind or be sober, and a Christian must be sober. Now, such a command is not a total condemnation of alcohol. There might be good reasons to abstain from drinking, but it's not a clear command in Scripture. I personally don't drink, and if you decide to drink, then, however, you must make sure that you do so in a manner that allows you to be sober and to keep a clear mind. Now, what is the reason for keeping this clear mind? Our sensible and alert thinking is to be used for prayer, for entreating God to act and move in the time that still remains. Prayer is the access to spiritual resources, but believers cannot pray properly if their minds are unstable due to unholiness or ignorance of divine truth or indifference to divine providence. Understanding that God is bringing history to a consummation should provoke believers to depend upon him. Such dependence 
drives us to our knees because prayer is the recognition that any good that occurs in the world is due to God's grace and only his grace. We can maintain the high ground of holiness through dependence upon his aid. Just like General Buford relied upon reinforcement, so too must a believer rely on strength that is outside of himself. Should you seek to be of sound judgment and sober in in your own strength, you will fail in that pursuit. A holy life is impossible outside of the imputed righteousness of Christ. You must seek the Lord in prayer. Your relationship with God is essential to living in the last days. A prayer is one of the channels of grace which God provides to his children. Keep your finger in 1 Peter and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. I want you to see something here. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Prayer is a means of beholding the glory of God. And it is a means in which God provides sanctifying grace to believers. Paul describes the work of sanctification in 2 Corinthians 3.18 as being a passive reception of God's glory. So again, 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says this, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Now notice, as we behold the glory of the Lord, it is God who is doing the action. We are merely just viewing the work of God. Thus, sanctification is the work of Christ. And you say, well, wait a minute, Jeremy. Does that mean that I'm supposed to just let go and let God, as some popular teachers proclaim today? I mean, am I completely passive in my sanctification as I'm living in these last days? Great question. No, you're not. Sanctification requires the work of Christ, but you're not passive. Sanctification is the work of God that comes through beholding the glory of God, which is Christ. The believer must place himself in the channels of grace that God provides for us to view that glory. You know, so many believers have an improper view of sanctification. Many believers will commit all manners of sins and think that there's just no escape And we label such sins as diseases in an attempt to lessen our responsibility. You know, instead of saying that that person is a drunk, we say, well, he's an alcoholic. It's a disease. Instead of labeling pornography as fornication, we say, well, well, he has a sex addiction. Instead of labeling anger as sinful, well, we say, well, he's just bipolar. These are unbiblical terms that have their origins in secular psychology, not in scripture. They deny personal responsibility and keep the believer enslaved to sin under the the false notion that he's merely sick. And medication, not sanctification, is the prescribed cure according to this view. And since no one wants to be told that they're sinning, many Christians embrace this unbiblical view of man and an unbiblical view of sin. And they become angry when you challenge this view. Maybe that's you today, this morning. You've accepted your sin as a disease And believe that there's no way to change this thinking. Such a view will keep you enslaved to sin and leave you without hope. And hopelessness for the Christian does not stem from sound judgment. In the last days, hopelessness is your worst enemy. Because there is hope in Christ. Scripture is clear that you do not have to remain enslaved. If you are a Christian, you have freedom in Christ. You can be transformed into the image of Christ. You do not have to wallow in your sin and in your hopelessness. No, God has provided you a means of sanctification. Prayer, 
along with the loving fellowship with other believers, the application of God's word and obedient spiritual service are all different channels of grace that God provides us to behold the glory of Christ. Such glory transforms our lives into the very image of Christ, which is a life of holiness. In these last days, Christians are to live transformed lives filled with joy and hope. Paul speaks of such transformation in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And Peter is providing further details in 1 Peter 4.7-11 of how we're to do this. We've already seen prayer is a means of grace in, in 1 Peter 4.7. Next, we will see that loving fellowship is Peter's next command. And we're going to see that as we come to verses 8 and 9 of 1 Peter chapter 4. So go back with me. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. And as we go through uh, this sermon, please keep your finger in 1 Peter chapter 4, 8 through 9. It's like our aircraft carrier. We might launch out to other places, but we're always going to return to 1 Peter chapter 4 to land. So 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As we live in these last days, one admonition stands out above all all others. Peter begins verse 8 by saying, above all. This statement indicates the primary nature of what the apostle is about to tell us. Believers are instructed to keep fervent in your love for one another. Now, the word translated as fervent is also found in chapter 1, verse 22, where Peter instructs his readers to fervently love one another from the heart. So it's a theme that we see throughout 1 Peter. And when we hear the word fervent, we usually associate it with passion and intensity. Yet in chapter 1, verse 22, and in chapter 4, verse 8, the Greek word translated as fervent actually conveys the idea of consistency. We're to be constant in our love for one another as believers. And the importance of such consistency in love can be seen in the apostles' repeated exhortations concerning the subject. Love is central to the Christian life. Indeed, Jesus warns us in Matthew 24, 12, that love will diminish in the last days. Christ declares, he says, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Therefore, we must maintain consistency in our love for one another, lest it grow cold and become extinguished. Love is central to the teachings of the gospel, and Peter is not the only one to emphasize loving one another. As again, Jesus does so in Matthew uh, 22, 34 through 40, when he quotes the Old Testament. Uh, and that Old Testament command is to what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Paul speaks of the excellence of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We all know that, especially if you're dating. You always run to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, but it's not a dating passage. It's speaking of a love between believers. The Apostle John describes such love in 1 John 2, 7 through 11. There's a consistent theme throughout Scripture of loving one another. And the context of living life in the last days should remind us that loving our fellow Christians is a priority. Now, what does such love look like? Well, We can see what it looks like and and why it's such a priority in the second half of verse 8 of 1 Peter chapter 4. We're to keep constant in our love or fervent in our love because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, Peter is quoting an abbreviated Hebrew rendering of Proverbs 10, 12, which says that hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Now, to cover sin in the sense of 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, does not mean to atone for sin. Jesus' death on the cross completely atoned for the sin of his people. 
The atonement of Christ acted as a propitiation, whereby the wrath of God was completely satisfied in the sacrifice of his son. So this atonement was not potential, it was not provisional, it was actual, it actually satisfied God's wrath for sin. And we see such truth in Romans 3 and Hebrews 10. Thus, we cannot atone for the sins of other believers. That's not what Peter is telling us to do. Nor is he saying that we should sweep sins under the, the, under the rug in order to hide sin and avoid scandal. In the last several years, there's been uh, several prominent churches that have done just that instead of confronting sin and practicing proper church discipline. You see, you cannot cover sin in love if the sin was not directed against you. Peter's admonition speaks to sin that is committed against you. To cover sin means to forgive sin that is done against you. Who should we forgive? Should we forgive any sin that is done to us? You know, some passages in scripture seem to imply that we can only forgive those who ask for it, such as Luke 17, 3 through 4, while other passages, such as Mark eleven twenty five, 25, seem to imply that we should forgive everyone who sins against us, regardless of whether they ask for it or not. So how can we, how can we square this circle? How can we understand this apparent discrepancy? Well, perhaps the, the best way is to make a distinction between the transaction of forgiveness and an attitude of forgiveness. Two different things. A transaction of forgiveness and an attitude of forgiveness. An attitude of forgiveness means that even though we may not be able to fully reconcile with everyone who sins against us, our attitude towards them should never be one of anger or bitterness, resentment, hostility, or any kind of ill will. We should also treat such people kindly and graciously as instructed in Romans 12, 17. This means that we will do everything that we can to bring that person to repentance if they have sinned. And we will always have an attitude of forgiveness towards them. However, although you should always have an attitude of forgiveness, there cannot be a transaction of forgiveness until there is repentance. Keep your finger in 1 Peter and turn with me back to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3 verse 3. Turn back to the gospel of Luke chapter 3. And here we're reading of John the Baptist who came preaching the gospel. John, like Jesus, always instructs the people to repent and believe the gospel. Now I want you to notice the description of John's ministry in Luke chapter 3, verse 3. Luke chapter 3, 3 says, And he, speaking of John, came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, what we see is this. God does not promise to pardon people unless they repent. Forgiveness comes after repentance. Therefore, we cannot say, I forgive you to people unless they repent of their sin. The transaction of forgiveness is conditional in that we can only be fully reconciled to someone who repents. Again, different transaction versus an attitude of forgiveness. Two separate things in Scripture. Go forward in Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4. So go forward a couple pages to Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4. And I know this is slightly different than what maybe the world teaches us uh, about forgiveness. Although oftentimes the world says that you shouldn't forgive. They either say you shouldn't forgive or you can just forgive and, 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 and without repentance. And, and there actually is a balance here that scripture teaches us. Luke 17, and we're going to look at verses 3 and 4. And the verses say that our responsibility to those who sin against us is to confront them of their sin. And we should only do so if they've truly dealt with our own heart, with our own heart attitudes first. So let's look at verses 3 and 4. It says, be on your guard. This is Jesus teaching. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. 
And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Wow. From these verses, we see we're to forgive if someone asks for repentance. And that forgiveness is to be immediate. It's to be repeated if, if they keep sinning against us and repenting. And it's to be lavish. We're to forgive one another just as God has forgiven us. When we grant forgiveness to someone, we're promising that we will not remember their sins anymore, as God promises us in Jeremiah 31, 34, when he gives us the new covenant. So when Peter declares in 1 Peter 4, 8, that love covers or forgives sin, this means that we should never use a believer's sins against them. Practically, we are saying the following to someone that we forgive. I will not remind you of that sin anymore unless it's absolutely necessary for your own good. So, for example, if a little kid disobeys you and goes up and places his hand on the hot stove and, and, you say, and he asks, I'm sorry, mom and dad, I, please forgive me for disobeying you. Okay, I'm not going to remind you of that unless you start going back towards the stove again. And then I'm going to remind you, no, that's wrong. All right, so I'm not going to remind you of that sin. I will not mention that sin to anyone else, again, unless it's absolutely necessary. And I will not allow my mind to dwell on the sin. You see, we are commanded to forgive. So we are sinning if we refuse to make that promise. Therefore, forgiveness is a matter of obedience rather than of feeling. It doesn't matter if we don't feel like forgiving someone. If they have repented of their sin, we should and must forgive them. It's a sin for us not to do so, and we must keep our promise to forgive regardless of how we feel. And the point in 1 Peter 4, 8 seems to be that acts of love put a lid on sins of dissension and quarreling, and thus stops disunity before it starts to fester within the church. See, love is the glue that holds together unity in the church. It is the mortar that holds together the temple of God that we call the church. Such love keeps the church unified in the last days. It also tunes our focus to others rather than ourselves. Turn back with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, and we'll look at verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 4, 9, as the apostle continues his instructions on love. Not only does love produce an attitude of forgiveness and then a transaction of forgiveness, but we also see in verse 9 that it produces service. In verse 9, it says to be hospitable to one another without complaint. Now, it's important to note that the Greek word translated as hospitable is a compound word, uh, philokinoi, which is created when you combine the words philos and xenoi. Now, philos is the root word of brotherly love. The city of Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. And xenoi refers to strangers, and it's the root word of our word for xenophobia, which is what? The fear of strangers. So when you combine these two words together, love of brothers and strangers, you get a love of strangers. So that's what it means to be hospitable here in the context of 1 Peter 4.9. Now, who are these strangers that it's referring to? Well, these are referring to Christians who are passing through or are new to the area. Unlike today where you can stop at the local Holiday Inn or Motel 6 when traveling, traveling in the ancient world carried a great deal of risk. There were Christian evangelists who traveled between cities and they had no guarantees of food or shelter. And Peter instructs Christians to be hospitable to one another and to do so without complaint. 
You know, one thing I, I love about this church is that this church is really good at being hospitable to other Christians, especially if they're strangers. When Sydney and I first moved here, many of you treated us with great hospitality. And I won't name names. You know who you are. But we had several families assist us when we, got, when we first got here. I mean, one family let us borrow a whole box of kitchen utensils when our household goods hadn't arrived yet. Another family took us out to dinner the, uh, when we got here. And then another one brought us food when we, we first moved into our home. And, and still others invited us over to their own homes. And such hospitality is a practical expression of the love that we are commanded to exercise towards other believers, even if they are strangers. In these last days, we are commanded to demonstrate hospitality towards others. It is an act of love. The world won't offer it to us. So we are commanded to love one another faithfully and continually. Now, this love not only forgives sins and, and is hospitable, but it's also essential to Peter's final command in this passage. You see, love impels us to keep serving. That's his third command. Look with me, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. And it says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. In these last two verses, Peter is describing believers as being blessed with spiritual gifts. As you live in the last days, you are to exercise the gifts that God has given you. Spiritual gifts aren't talents. They're not abilities that you possess. Now, they might overlap with a, a talent or an ability that you possess, but spiritual gifts are not something that you're born with. They are a gift that God gives you after your conversion to Christ. When you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, he gives you certain gifts. And this is why verse 10 declares that you have received a spiritual gift, or a special gift, pardon me. Such gifts can certainly be developed through their use and can be refined through the work of the Holy Spirit. However, they are gifts given to you and not traits that you naturally possess. Now, please note that these gifts are not for your personal benefit or enjoyment. They're not meant to be used to serve or glorify yourself. Notice the end of verse 10. As you're given a special gift, you are, quote, to employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So spiritual gifts are meant to be used to benefit and edify the church. They are meant to be used for others. And any other use of that gift would be a misuse of the gift. Now, perhaps you doubt that you have a spiritual gift from God. You think, well, well, I can't preach and I'm scared to teach. And when I start singing, the person next to me gets out cotton balls and puts them in, my, in their ears. Like, and if that's you, I identify with you on that. However, everyone has a gift and they're not all the same. Peter speaks of two types of gifts, two types of spiritual gifts in, in verse 11. He divides spiritual gifts into speaking gifts and serving gifts. And the first type of gifts that he lists are speaking gifts. Now, this would include teaching and singing, interpretation, and prophecy slash preaching. These gifts are not limited to the pastor, but are, in, might include many different people within the church. And Peter will discuss more fully the specific gift of eldership in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. He's building up to that. So when Peter declares whoever speaks is to do so as one speaking the utterances of God, he's not saying that we should speak a new revelation from God. He's emphasizing the serious nature of proclaiming God's word. When proclaiming the gospel, we must not rely on our intellect, 
on philosophy or upon worldly wisdom or our, by our ability to debate with someone and try to argue them into the kingdom. We are to speak the utterances of God, proclaiming his message and not our own. And what about the gift of prophecy? In the New Testament, um, there's the, the gift of prophecy. And I, I want you to note that the word prophecy does not always mean foretelling the future in the Old Testament sense. Depending on the context, the word prophecy actually in the New Testament often speaks of forthtelling, proclaiming the revealed word of God. And in that sense, and in that sense alone, mind you, I am a prophet, as are the elders. Now, don't say, well, Jeremy, we're starting a charismatic movement here. No, we're not. We're, I'm just standing up here and proclaiming the revealed word of God. In that sense, that is the gift of prophecy that is often mentioned in the New Testament. We're not bringing a new revelation from God. We are merely foretelling what God has revealed in Scripture. Now, conversely, anyone who claims to be a modern-day prophet with new revelation from God should be marked and avoided as a charlatan. God speaks to us through his word today, not through new revelation. That's why people who claim to have visions from God are to be tested against God's word. And in every case, they fall short of the test. 2 Peter chapter 1, 19 through 21 speaks of God's word being more sure than a personal experience. And in the same manner, the gift of tongues was an apostolic gift given to the apostles to demonstrate their apostolic authority. This is because the apostles did receive new revelation from God. That's recorded in the, in the New Testament. That it has apostolic authority, but the canon of scripture is closed today. Therefore, there are no more apostles today, and thus there's no more need for that gift. And furthermore, tongues are not a private prayer language, as some people claim today. Why? Well, what are spiritual gifts for? Who are they to edify? If it's a private prayer language, who are you edifying? You're edifying yourself. But if, if it's a gift from God, that means it is to edify the church, edify others. And you might say, well, okay, I, I, I know those aren't, aren't exercised today, and you've talked about preaching, and you've talked about singing, and you've talked about some other gifts, but I, I'm not a preacher, and I don't sing very well, I don't teach. Well, I, I don't need to worry about that then, right? No, because every Christian is commanded to share the gospel. Now, not all will do so from behind a pulpit, but we're all commanded to share the utterances of God, Scripture. Furthermore, spiritual gifts are not dependent upon natural ability. There may come a time when God raises you up to proclaim his word publicly. You know, if you had asked any of the elders about four or five years ago, if they had the gift of preaching, many of them would have probably laughed at you and said, no way. And when Pastor Bob retired, there was a need in the church. And some of the elders were raised up and given this gift of teaching to us. Remember, the purpose of gifts is to edify the church. If there is a void in the church, God will either bring someone to the church from outside to fill the void or to equip someone in the church with that necessary gifting. You know, if the government came into this church tomorrow and carted off all the elders and myself and anyone else who has ever taught in this church, God would equip someone in the church with the gift of preaching. Now, that does not mean that the person's going to be the next John MacArthur, or Billy Graham, or Steve Lawson. If you hadn't noticed, none of the elders or I are those men. But God will ensure that his church will be edified through the teaching and preaching of his word. In the same way, verse 11 tells, that, tells us that whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Again, this is through God's strength, not our own. 
Now, serving gifts, they're described in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. These include giving and leading, mercy, helping, and generally ministering to one another. Those who minister and serve others are not to do so in their own strength. You must minister by the strength which God supplies, relying on his power to carry out your tasks. You rely on his power through prayer. Not everyone has been gifted with preaching and singing. If we were all preachers, it would be kind of crowded up here. But everyone has a gift. And it's important to exercise that gift lest the church suffer. Now, perhaps your gift is serving others. You can edify the church by washing dishes or making the coffee, setting up chairs or helping out in the nursery. And each one of these gifts is vital to the edification of the church. Now, if you tell me, well, Jeremy, I just don't have a gift. I don't know what gift I have. Maybe I have one. I just don't know what I have. Well, okay, that's fine. But don't just sit back and be like, okay, I don't know what it is. I'm not going to investigate. Look for ways to use whatever gift God has given you. Often he will put desires or skills or opportunities in your way. And you need to take advantage of those opportunities that God places in your way. For instance, as Chris already mentioned in the announcements, tomorrow there's a women's ministry meeting at 7 p.m. at Karen Kettering's house. It's listed in the bulletin. If you're a woman, perhaps you can go and see how you can serve. It might be teaching. It might be hosting a group at your home. It might be bringing dessert. It might be just praying with someone. And all of those are important ways to use gifts that God has given you. Perhaps you're an outdoor person and you say, well, what does that have to do with spiritual gifts? Well, as Chris said, we're taking the youth out camping and we're asking for people to donate uh, tents and, and, and sleeping bags and stuff. Let us borrow those because some of our students don't have those items. And, and that could be a way to exercise your spiritual gift of giving and, and serving. Right? Many of you have already reached out and offered to assist and we thank you not only for, for, for your love for us, but also that you're exercising a spiritual gift and using that opportunity that God has provided you. You know, if you look at the back of the bulletin, there's a whole list of prayers. Perhaps you know someone who's going through a rough time. You can certainly pray for them. Perhaps you can also be a blessing by calling them up and saying, hey, I just want to let you know I'm praying for you. Or going over to their house or encouraging them or maybe even taking them a meal. The point is this, we all have spiritual gifts that are to be used to edify the church. There are opportunities all around you to exercise your gift. And like Peter, I encourage you to employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now, when those who speak God's words rather than their own and those who serve do so in God's strength rather than their own, God is then glorified through that service. This is the cause for Peter's command. This is why he's writing this to us, that Christ might be glorified. The edification of the church through spiritual gifts is not an end to itself. Why? Because our spiritual gifts are gifts that God has graciously provided. He is to receive the honor and the glory for these gifts. Christ's glory is to be our ultimate aim as we live our life in the last days. God receives the glory because he is the one who has provided the wisdom and strength for ministry. The provider is always the one who is praised. If human beings are the source of their words and, and of their strength for ministry, then they would deserve to be praised. But if the wisdom and energy comes from the Lord, he gets the glory because he's the one who empowers us for service. And this is the reason for spiritual gifts and indeed the reason for heeding all of Peter's exhortations. Look at the end of verse 11 with me. The end of verse 11 says, So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The end of this verse expands past spiritual gifts and encompasses all aspects of living life in the last days. 
Giving glory to God is the ultimate purpose of all human life and activity. Your very purpose for existing is to glorify God. Your salvation as a child of God is so that you will bring glory to God. The purpose of being sober and and, and of praying is to glorify God. The purpose of maintaining love for one another and to forgive other sins is that to do so glorifies God. And what is the, who's the agent of this glory? And the phrase is through Jesus Christ. This expresses Christ as the, the, the agent of God's action. God receives glory through the work of Jesus Christ. Such work was not only accomplished on the cross, but through his perfectly righteous life that he lived to be our savior. For, for, uh, furthermore, this righteousness has been applied to your life if you are a believer, meaning that when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of his son. The Lord has claim upon all glory and dominion for all eternity. The ending of verse 11 is a, is a doxology that extols the majesty of God. It's not a wish for the Lord to receive glory and dominion. It's a fact. Glory and dominion belong to the Lord. Kings and nations tremble at the voice of the Lord. If you're not a Christian, you too should tremble. Christ has dominion. You must submit to his rule or you will be treated as a spiritual rebel. Christ's power and glory are realities that directly affect your eternal future. Now such glory is not temporal, it's eternal. It will will last forever and ever. Even as we approach the consummation of history, history, we must remember that the glory and dominion of the Lord will last into eternity. For Christians, we have no reason to fear the consummation of history. Christians can have peace as we face persecution and trials in this present world because we know that the Lord has glory and dominion. These are realities that help us and should help you live faithfully in these last days. And I pray that you would heed the instructions of Peter as you seek to live for God's glory in the last days. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, how grateful we are that we can gather together hear your word. Lord, we're grateful for your love and for the opportunities that we have to glorify you through loving one another, through being of sound mind, through heeding your word, through forgiving one another, and by serving one another through the spiritual gifts that you have provided. I pray that you would let your word touch each and every heart that is heard it this morning. May they leave with a, uh, an abject wonder and awe at your glory and your power and your majesty. And Lord, I ask that you would bless the remainder of our time together, bring us uh, to our home safely and bring us back safely next week.